Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The FT. This is Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio, the FT's investment banking correspondent, Megan Murphy, retail banking correspondent, Charlene Goff, and chief regulation correspondent, Brooke Masters. This week, we'll discuss Lloyd's decision to take back bonuses. It will set a really interesting precedent because nobody's looked at how these clawbacks work. We also take a look at Lloyd's and RBS results. They're not being awarded for anything spectacular. In fact, it takes something as bad as PPI, you know, the worst mis-selling scandal in decades, yeah. to claw that bonus back. And the latest on the LIBOR scandal. There will have to be a serious reckoning about how these rates are set. They're supposed to be impervious to manipulation. First to PPI, though, this mis-selling of payment protection insurance and Lloyd's Bank being poised to take back a significant chunk of the bonuses it's previously awarded to senior executives. Charlene, you've been looking at this story And it's particularly interesting, I guess, because Eric Daniels, the former chief executive, looks set to be stripped of a significant chunk of what he got as a bonus for 2010, which is his last full year in the job. What exactly is the justification for him in particular and Lloyd's in particular looking to reclaim these bonuses? Yeah, well, I think the interesting thing that this is the first time that a bank will have successfully clawed back bonuses since they were given these new powers by the FSA in 2009. The PPI issue has been particularly big scandal at the banks. It's the worst mis-selling consumer scandal in in decades. And Lloyd's Um, was the most affected by it as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Lloyd's was one of the most aggressive sellers of this insurance. It took a £3.2 billion hit last year for compensating those customers that were missold this for over a number of years. I mean, it's an interesting one, I think, because PPI was sold over, you know, a long period of time, sort of over many years. And the £3.2 billion charge was taken by the new chief executive, Eric's replacement, Antonio Ottorosorio, voluntarily. And many people still think that that was too large a charge for the bank to take, that he was sort of came in and was kitchen sinking. And he took it in 2011. He took it in 2011. But um, Eric Daniels obviously had left by then. So they're being punished for, well, they're having part of the bonuses clawed back, the bonuses they were awarded in 2010. So actually, Lloyd's wasn't selling that much PPI in that year. So is Eric Daniels and the other executives affected by this likely to be uh, thinking of challenging the legality of this? Because clawback was designed, as far as we understood it, I think, to apply to bonuses allocated in any one year and then relevant business backfiring from that year could be reclaimed in future years. Yes, but I think if you take the hit at the beginning of 2011, I mean, that hit sort of went back and a lot of that was applied to past years. I think they just thought the best chance they would have of getting the bonuses back would be for 2010. But I do think there will be a legal challenge. I mean, I don't think any of the executives are going to take this lightly, particularly as they're not at the bank anymore. Brooke, do you agree? I think there almost certainly will be a legal challenge from someone. And it will set a really interesting precedent because nobody's looked at how these clawbacks work. The FSA 
grow their pay policies to say everybody has clawback powers from now on, but it's not at all clear how well they were defined they were. So there's going to have to be a couple of court cases to sort it out. Yeah, I think that uh, as we were discussing this morning, the other biggest headline one we've sent to date was just recently with UBS taking clawbacks of 200 million Swiss francs worth of bonuses. But that was because the division, the investment banking division was unprofitable because of the alleged rogue trading scandal that happened there, the 2 billion that made the division unprofitable. I think it's interesting. I'm not so sure people will sue. I mean, that is pretty. I mean, that is taking some gravitas if you're going to sue over your bonus being clawback. You're going to become public enemy number, you know. I mean, Eric Daniels is already pretty low in the public popularity stakes. You know, they're outside the industry. And, and it's interesting who else will be caught up in this because you've got Tim Tookie, who's the finance director. He's about to start a new job. Yeah, Helen, Helen Weir, the former head of their retail operations, she was recently appointed as the FT of John Lewis. So either of those two really going to want, I think you're right, you know, are they going to want to create this big stink over, you know, a couple of hundred thousand pounds when they're both about to start big new roles? They want to probably draw a line under this, start afresh somewhere else. So I think you're right. And, I mean, yeah, I mean, PPI gonna... was bad too. I mean, this was not, this was of consumer scandals. I think the, the key one. question is whether, whether Eric Daniels uh, yes, pursues I think because he's, he's not gone one. on to any other big job. He's still, I think, embittered about the way things ended up at Lloyd's. And also, he's always felt that he wasn't doing anything wrong at the time. You know, mm. all of the banks sold PPI. And actually, when they were selling it, it was within the rules set out by the FSA. They weren't doing anything illegal. But I suppose the they reality of the matter they, is that the, it cost them $3 billion. So far, it's cost them a fraction of it, that. But it, it will. It, the will the provisioning them. is up to $3 billion, yeah. We should also look uh, at the impact that these charges and other economic realities of the second half of last year will play out for the bank's results. We've got both Lloyd's and RBS reporting their numbers at the end of this week. What do you think, Charlene, in terms of how bad they're likely to be? It's the results we've seen so far from US and other European banks and also from Barclays haven't exactly inspired confidence among investors, I don't think. No, exactly. And I think, I mean, obviously, the PPI impact will be huge for 2011. But we really saw that come through in the first half of the year. So stripping that out, I think it's still going to be really tough for both Lloyd's and RBS. For Lloyd's, um, they're coming with their results on Friday. The bank most sort of in line with the UK economy, which is looking worse and worse. We're expecting impairments to have ticked up again at the end of last year on mortgages, on their Irish book, where they've encountered problems for the last couple of years. That's expected to have gotten a bit worse. But I think the focus for there, for Lloyd's, will be on its chief executive, Antonio Tarazario. It's his first big outing since he came back to the bank in January after two months off sick at the end of the year. So I think journalists and analysts will be sort of scrutinising his every word, the appearance of him just to see that he is back to full health and, you know, to try and convince the market that he is the one to turn around this bank. And it's the first time really that he will be talking to investors yeah. directly, I guess, because as he waited for these results to come out, he hasn't been doing any kind of roadshow or anything to convince investors of his health. No, I think he wanted to do it with something to say, whether he'll have a good story at the end of this. I think it's going to have been a really tough year. And, you know, this year, particularly, I don't think it's going to get much better for Lloyd's. And Megan, as far as RBS is concerned, a lot of the attention is going to be focused on the investment bank there, how it's performed, but also the details of what Stephen Hester and John Herrick and the head of that division are going to outline for a fairly massive restructuring is what we expect. Yeah, I mean, we've already had a very good detail about what they're doing in terms of the equities business and closing down and trying to sell off parts of that. And that's already well entrained. The results will be very poor, um, dismal, I think would be a fair assessment in terms of <clears throat> what we're looking at. I expect it to be loss making for the fourth quarter. Every European investment bank, with the exception of Barclays Capital, has been loss making in the fourth quarter. Obviously, 
obviously, this bonuses issue is a huge thing. We already know the total pool for the investment bank is going to be around 500 million pounds. That's half of last year, but still going to cause tremendous agitation. It has already. And obviously, this ongoing issue as to whether long-term deferred performance awards awarded in 2009 to senior executives, including... um, John Hurricane, the head of the Global Banking and Markets Division, is sort of first in line for that, eligible to receive over 21 million shares that are worth constantly fluctuating number, but around five and a half million pounds right now. Actually does, for me, being that this is my last podcast on banking, I will say it does defy belief that they are going to proceed with this payment um, just because what's happened and given that it was for restructuring a unit that is now being totally restructured again, I think it's interesting. I think they are going to go ahead with it, but I don't think they really contemplate the backlash that's going to come. I think people are going to be upset about this. The argument they always put forward is that John Hurricane has been vital in the last three years because he's delivered 10 billion of the 33 billion pounds of profits that RBS has made. And without that, if he hadn't have generated that, that would have had to have come again from the government because they wouldn't have been able to fund the cleanup. But it's not apples to oranges because they strip out all of their bad, toxic stuff is in non-core. And therefore, People always use this line, 10 billion of operating profit. If you put that in, it wouldn't have been profitable at all. There's no question that they experienced the rebound in 2009 that all investment banks, they've had a woeful 10 and 11, worse than any of their peers. It never was a fully functioning business. They should have pulled the ripcord on several divisions of it long ago. I mean, and if executives are going to be awarded for profits, you know, taking away all of the nasty stuff and putting that in a completely different part of the bank and then going, yes, but you've hit your profit targets, you know, that's got to raise questions on its own. And also the whole point of long-term incentive plans is that you do better than your peers, or at least not just like riding the rising tide when it happens and then sinking like a stone as soon as it stops. Absolutely. I mean, he's. I just think it's interesting. Obviously, as journalists, we have no vested interest in it, but I think it's profoundly interesting, and I think it'll be really interesting as to whether they disclose exactly what targets were hit. Yeah, well, which I don't think they're going to do. This, again, puts the spotlight on the whole issue of bonuses. They're not being awarded for anything spectacular. In fact, it takes something as bad as PPI, you know, the worst mis-selling scandal in decades, to claw that bonus back. And even then, not the entire bonus, only a quarter of the bonus. So you're still, they still will walk away with a lot of money when the bank is making these huge losses. Talking about another element of bad news and another scandal, we should move on to our last topic of the day, which is the LIBOR collusion or alleged collusion that took place between a lot of banks in the height of the first wave of the financial crisis. Now, this has been kind of rumbling on for months and Brooke and Megan, you've both been watching it closely. It seems to be spreading by the day, really. The UBS has just suspended some of its most senior traders over this. Megan, are we going to come to any clean conclusion over this or is it just going to rumble on and on and on? I think that this threatens to be one of these sort of headline regulatory investigations since the crisis, because I think it's fascinating, and I'm sure Brooke would agree that the issue on this is what they first started this investigation to look at, which was alleged possible collusion among leading banks to submit lower borrowing rates among each other to disguise how their weaknesses as the crisis spiraled. In investigating that, what they seem to have uncovered is widespread, pervasive attempts by desks on various different leading banks in various different parts of the world to allegedly manipulate 
the London interbank offered rate, the Tokyo interbank offered rate, and similar European rate, basically to make trading profits on their derivative stuff. So it's been fascinating to sort of as it unwinds and sort of what people, uh, what different regulators have uncovered. It doesn't seem to be isolated cases. It seems like there were traders operating in different banks and different you know levels. They were also allegedly cooperating with interdealer brokers. I mean, it's really unraveled a whole thicket of interesting it, conduct. Well, it, I find it very funny that it's all come out right as the Volcker Rule commentary is coming in. Because if you ever wanted a really good argument why big banks shouldn't be prop trading, because these are the big banks that set the rates that affect my mortgage and your car loan. And they were apparently allegedly being influenced by banks and their prop trading. Now that yeah, no, that's a good point. It's, actually. you know, LIBOR's a reference rate for $350 trillion worth of financial products worldwide. As, as Brooke says, you know, it's the, it's your car loan. It's, you know, huge corporate lending facilities. And I think that regardless of what comes out about individual culpability, bank enforcement fines, et cetera, there will have to be a serious reckoning about how these rates are set. They're supposed to be impervious to manipulation because it's done where it's a huge panel of banks and the top rates are knocked out and the low rates are knocked out so that what you get is an average of actual rates. But if we see what seems to be, and with one bank in particular, UBS, that has claimed immunity in several jurisdictions, has actually admitted possible antitrust violations in several jurisdictions. This clearly is an issue that this rate was seen as could be being manipulated. So what's the alternative if it's not set by a panel of whatever a dozen or more banks? Um, Real trades. Mm. I mean, that's you don't set stock prices. Yeah, you don't set stock prices by what people think they can So this is just an outdated relic of illiquid markets? That is it outdated or do you think it's an issue of transparency and banks just actually don't want to disclose exactly as you said, an actual borrowing, you know, an actual trade that would give them because that would be because these rates are you can look up the LIBOR and what banks have submitted every single day to do that on would show major diversification one would assume I mean during the crisis there would have been a huge difference between JP Morgan Chase and UBS for example you know it's uh, and that would ebb and flow and it's a it's the best barometer of perceived risk in the system part of the problem is people don't borrow every day I mean people buy and sell a share every day and in multiple in billions and so it's, it's very easy to say this is the market price it is to a certain extent an illiquid market so it should it should and could work feasibly. There are hundreds of thousands of banks in the, if you included everybody in it and not just the 19 big ones. Yeah. It, yeah. it would clearly be a, a somewhat more accurate market. So apart from potential reform in the way that this is all structured, what else are we going likely to see over the coming weeks Megan in terms of the I don't um, think it's action. going to be weeks on this, but I do think the more I look into this and the more I look at it, this is massive fines going to come out of this. Cartel-style fines. Can... And not just in London. No, no, no. So cartel-style fines in Europe, you, you know, the Euribor rate is being probed for a sort of yeah. systemic global cartel. Those at their highest level can reach into the billions. Um, enforcement fines against individuals obviously are never as high, but the reputational damage is huge. Yeah. Then you have the biggest problem is the class action lawsuits coming down the pike on this. Several have already been filed. I think once you have sort of immunity being claimed, it's very easy. And this rate, again, unfortunately for the banks in some respects, there's no, it's very, it would be very easy for class action lawyers to draw a direct connection in, you know, the world's biggest class, class action market, the US, as to the effect it would have impacted. And this would be from corporate clients. Um, corporate clients to individuals. I, know, I think the big it's ones are the individuals. Yeah. It's, it's every right. mortgage. It's every mortgage. The only, it's every... I think the only question is, in order to make money, they'd have to show that the rate was higher than it should have been. Yeah. For a period of time that affected people's mortgages. But if you can show that, say, for three months, it was artificially high, that's billions and billions of dollars of extra mortgage payments that people made that they're going to And there back. is the allegation that both 
artificially high rates and artificially low rates were submitted. So it's, yeah. it's looking if, if not good. If that case good. can be proved. Yet another reason for investors to be rather bearish about bank stocks, I guess, uh, going forward. On that rather bleak notice, uh, all we have time for for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Charlene, Brooke and Megan, as you say, for the last time, moving off the investment banking beat and onto, onto the media team. We'll be welcoming Daniel Schaefer, Megan's replacement, in the coming weeks. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Amy Tsang. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.